0: G'day everyone, I'm your host, Stephen, and welcome to another episode of the Bamboo History Podcast. For those of you who are new, the Bamboo History Podcast is a podcast about Chinese and East Asian history. If you like this sort of content, please subscribe to my podcast to keep track of my latest episodes and listen to my existing content. I also have an Instagram too, at Bamboo History Podcast, which contains visual content, teasers, and additional historical content too small to fit into a podcast. So please check out and follow my Instagram too. And lastly, to all my existing listeners, thanks again for being with me on this journey and for all of your support. Now, I'm really excited for today's episode because today, and for the first time ever on this show, I'm doing an interview. Today, I'll be interviewing Angela Chingyi Lin, who is currently a copywriter from Singapore and studied an honours degree in history at the National University of Singapore. She is passionate about history, as well as Singaporean modern societal issues, as well as Asian culture, films, and, so I've read, she also likes pottery as well. The focus of today's interview will be an article that Angela recently wrote about, titled, Empress Dowager Cixi, Rightly Condemned or Wrongly Discredited, which she wrote for the media platform, The Collector. For those of you who don't know what that is, The Collector is an online media platform that aims to promote the knowledge and passion of humanities to the public and aims to bring scholars, enthusiasts, or just someone with a curious mind all together. The Collector is filled with great articles written by authors who are qualified in the fields of art, philosophy, and of course, history. If you want to know more about The Collector, what they do, and what they have online, head on to their website at thecollector.com. That's spelt T-H-E-C-O-L-L-E-C-T-O-R. The Collector. No caps, no spaces. All right, now let's get straight into this episode. So Angela has now joined us from Singapore. G'day, Angela. How are you?
1: Hi, everyone. Hi, Stephen. I'm good, and I'm so excited to be on your podcast. excited to start this virtual conversation with you.
0: We're really excited for you to come onto our podcast as well. To begin, would you be able to introduce to all our listeners who you are, um, what you do and what you enjoy?
1: Okay, um, I'm Angela. You can call me Angela. Um, I actually uh, majored in history back in university and then I sort of continued this passion until now, a few years down the road already. Um, I'm actually a content writer, a copywriter for a local uh, gallery. So I mainly deal with, you mentioned earlier, contemporary as well, historical uh, Singapore topics. Yeah.
0: And why did you decide to start writing articles for The Collector?
1: I've actually uh, been reading uh, The Collector for a while and was just looking at the kind of uh, the variety of articles they have. They are actually uh, reaching out to a lot of writers from all over the world, which is something that I find very interesting. There is this online platform where people who are enthusiastic about hi- enthusiastic about history, about this kind of topics, they actually can come together, um, share their expertise, share their views, and also to connect with uh, like-minded individuals from all over the world. So that is something that I find very intriguing. And I'm also a little uh, curious about the kind of anger that uh, I can portray from an Asian perspective because this is mainly a site that's actually based in Canada. So it's more from a Western uh, point of view. So I'm actually interested and excited to share uh, a little bit more about Asian history as well as uh, Singaporean history if I get a chance. Okay, But mostly Asian history, something that I'm more passionate about and hopefully I can share my perspectives, uh, what I know, what I've learned uh, with audiences from all over the world. Yeah.
0: And I guess leading into the article that you've written about the Empress Dowager Tsushi, uh, what intrigued you about Tsushi in particular that you decided to write about her um, rather than other personalities in ancient slash modern Chinese history?
1: I think she's a really, uh, animatic, uh, character. She's so complex. Like, uh, the way she, she faces the challenges during uh, her time as a woman in imperial China. I think that's not an easy thing for a woman like her. She came from very humble beginnings. She rose, you can say, through the ranks all the way up to become the, the highest authority in China. I think that's not an easy task. And in fact, she, she did it within 50 years. I think that is something that she's not really given a lot of credit for. And what i'm interested most about her is how even after you know almost a century after she has passed she still manages to divide opinions she still um manages to get people angry like you know if you you talk to people about the end of imperial china they'll be like oh it's sissy's fault you know that that woman that that, that crazy woman who she ended the whole empire is all her fault so i think the fact that she can trigger this kind of emotions in the modern audience is really something that i find very fascinating yeah
0: from your perspective how did you feel about Empress Tsushi so growing up and did people around you share sort of the sentiment of hate towards her or what sort of feeling was there towards her?
1: I think when I was learning about her, uh, I believe back in uh, university days, the way it was taught is actually in the more mainstream, aligned the mainstream interpretations. Like yeah. most people, you know, you perceive her as power hungry. She's the despot. She's the person who, uh, you know, decorated her whole palace uh, beautifully, uh, using all the the state reserves and the state funds, and then she caused the downfall of Qing Empire. So that was like the the whole traditional perspective that we grew up with, and we were very accustomed to. I think this is also something that's been reinforced by the media, like the whole media. Um, you know the movies that we see about her, or the films that we watched about her, is always portrayed in this kind of negative uh, light. So actually, growing up, uh, my dad's pers- he's also quite interested in his historical topics. We actually talked about um, some of these things when we are chatting and all. So oh, whenever, totally whenever we talk about Chinese history, we, we always saw her as corrupted, like she's manipulative. Yeah. You know, especially the part where she ruled behind the curtain. You know that that whole yeah. um in Chinese called twiliantington. Yeah. Like that whole idea that she can um, manipulate people. But she she sort of like hide behind the curtains and then she's going with all her, her little schemes and all those things to get, bring people down, to bring her opponents down. I think this is actually something very relevant in the modern, if you apply this to politics in the corporate world. This is actually a kind of like a strategy that some people use also. I think this is what uh, cements her, her relevance, like the whole political strategies yeah. that she used. Yeah.
0: And I agree. I think and one of the things I love about history is that you can learn from the past and apply it into the present. So in terms of the tactics that she used to gain power and all that, it's perfectly relevant to the world of politics and business today. Um, So I guess in terms of during your research and understanding of Empress Tsushi, what did you think were the qualities that she had or what personality did you have or the upbringing that she had growing up, did you think enabled her to do all of that, to gain power in such a short amount of time?
1: Yeah, so I read a bit about her life before she became the concubine, before like she joined the palace. Uh, I, I knew that she was actually from an educated family, but I didn't know that in her upbringing, her father actually engaged her in conversations about like basically state affairs, basically business, basically... Uh, everything related to politics. So I think that kind of environment that she grew up with actually trained her confidence in a sense. It allowed her to be more vocal about how she felt and she's also more knowledgeable as well as aware of the things that's going on around her. And I think when she joined the Empress Harem and she joined, she, she entered the palace, she did try to apply this experience. She did try to you know give like un- unsolicited opinions to the emperor, which I later read that he was very annoyed by it and he's totally <laughs> like... Oh, yeah. this woman needs to stop telling me what to do. Yeah, so I, I think for Cixi, she, she actually, is shaped by a lot of her growing up experiences. And also the fact that she learned how to read and write Chinese, which is yeah. actually a little uncommon for people, uh, for women of that time. And um, she, if I'm not wrong, she's also trained in terms of like uh, drawing, uh, playing chess, embroidery, you know, those kind of like desirable yeah. qualities of a woman for that point in time. So that actually all these... growing up experiences actually paved the way for her to join the to enter the palace to become a concubine yeah which she actually used to her advantage yeah
0: and i think going on to that point how she was you know her father was a uh, was in politics and you know she grew up you know educated in the chinese language and had a wealth of knowledge that probably would have set her apart from her peers like from the other concubines or and all that in the palace do you think that was probably the case
1: I think that definitely helped her candidature. That's definitely one of the reasons why I think she got selected. Uh, yeah. But I read from my research that she is actually not like fantastically beautiful. She's not like breathtakingly beautiful like for a woman at that point in time. But I think she had points. Yeah. Which is something that the emperor actually saw in her and the fact that she's very observant and she could pick up little things from the yeah. people around her and she would try to to apply them in their life. And if it doesn't work, for example, like how the emperor doesn't really like her opinions yeah. and all those things, she will learn from the lesson and then she will stop it. And oh, I think that okay. is something that is, she's very adaptable in the sense. She's willing to to take risks, make a mistake, yeah. learn from it. And then I'll just observe and watch from now on. I think that is something uh, which makes her a very compelling character. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And how long did it take yeah. to rise, for her to rise up the ranks?
1: I believe all it took was for her to give birth to a son. <laughs> Oh, okay. She gave birth to the Empress son and then, you know, that sort of like elevated her through the ranks. Yeah. Which is yeah, actually the-, the, the emperor Tong in, in the future. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. But I believe yeah. she
1: became the emperor's concubine in 1851 and yeah. then she gave birth in 1856, which is like five years. Yeah, yeah.
0: So it's not that long. And yeah, because of the fact that, you know, the males is very important for the succession yeah. and all that. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And do you think um I, when I was reading your article, you listed a lot of her achievements, mm. but there were also some things that probably weren't as good that she did. Writing the article, what did you think was one of her greatest achievements and what was one of her worst yep. failures?
1: In terms of the achievements, I think in my article, I talked about how she launched the self-strengthening movement. which is the whole start of yep. the modernization uh, aspect of China, which is happened at a very pivotal moment in Chinese history because they were dealing with the Taiping Rebellion, the whole Western incursions yeah. from the Opium War and all those things. That was a point where she realized that there was a need to modernize China. There was a need to compete with all these foreign powers in terms of defense, in terms of military, in yeah. terms of the whole intellectual movement, in a sense, or we need to keep up. You know, we need to accept the fact that we are behind and we need to accept the fact that these people, if we don't do something about it, they will come into our country and take over everything we have. I think that realization that she had actually helped her push for the self-strengthening movement, which really did amount to some change and some, not profound changes, I wouldn't say it's profound changes, but there was some change and there was the fact that people still believe, okay, maybe China can make it. Maybe we are not so bad after all. I think she helped to spark that confidence. I think she helped to create that whole drive for modernization. Her willingness to see the Western powers as um, not just barbarians, not just people who are barbarian, just they're just here to take our nation. I think She did try to improve the diplomacy Uh, aspect with the Western powers. There is the creation of the whole sort of like a Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Zhongli Yaman. Uh, There's something that she's willing to learn from the foreign powers, not just treat them as enemies and it's just us versus them. I think that is something that she, she managed to achieve within that short period of time. But for me personally, that's the more objective part. For the subjective aspect, personally, I feel that her greatest achievements really lie in how she laid a lot of foundations for a lot of change after she died, for example, she actually pushed for the abolishment of foot binding. If you know, a very grotesque, really disgusting uh, tra- tradition of the past, uh, she helped to actually uh, pave the way for the removal, uh, sorry, the abolishment of, um, uh, if I'm not wrong, the imperial uh, Chinese examinations, the ancient examination system. Uh, all these are things that she pushed for during her lifetime, but the effects were only seen after that. Um, people didn't realize her or, or didn't give her enough credit for these kind of things only after she passed maybe like 20 years, 30 years down the road then we start to realize that this woman apart from the whole corrupted part she actually did something and her legacy actually lasted longer than just that 50 years where she's in power and I think that's one of the greatest achievements I would say uh, of Tusi. yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think it's just unlucky in a way that she's been made into a scapegoat for all of the failures that have happened just because she was the decision maker, she was the figurehead. But I think it represents a lot more in terms of the Chinese culture in general coming into conflict with the modernization of the West. One thing I I did want to touch upon was what you mentioned about the self-strengthening movement. So you did mention that, yeah, she she made very proactive steps to reform China during that period. But I did notice in your article that uh, you mentioned that she was really resistant when it came up to the 100 Days Reform that happened later on under Guangxu. So I was just curious what you thought, I guess, was the reason as to why she was so resistant to that when she was very proactive earlier on.
1: Right. I think we have to examine what happened in, in this period of time because the self-strengthening movement was back in 1861. And then uh, Guangxu's reform was actually in, I believe, 1898 when he came to power Uh, uh after he matured. Uh that is actually looking at about 30 years. I think that's 30 years, which is actually half of her, her reign, if you look at it. Uh, there were a lot of things that happened during that period of time. She was dealing with a lot of internal politics. For example, like she and Prince Kong, the her sort of a, a partner, partner in crime, the sidekick that helped her launch the self-strengthening movement, they were getting into a lot of conflicts. She didn't like him. She she knew she saw that she saw him as a, a threat. Basically, like this this guy is just getting so much power. He is wielding a lot of influence in the Zhongliyama. He ended the Taiping Rebellion. I think he's gonna come after my 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 ranks and my authority one day. So I need to get rid of him. So she was very engrossed in that whole uh, paranoia about this Prince Kong, right? That actually affected how um, the relationship that they have, which is like, she's actually the the half brother of the previous emperor. So the relationship that they had actually suffered after that and then um she was dealing with also the next em- uh, emperor tongzhu's death uh, in 1875 her trusted senior consort which is uh, empress an uh, the, the other consort of empress yan so her sudden death actually changed the way she saw things because uh, empress an was very supportive of her very supportive of the way from the start, where she was just a a lower-ranking concubine, she supported her, helped her roll, uh, rise through the ranks. You know, she actually ruled behind the curtain with her as well. When Su An died, a lot of things caused Su to be more redrawn. She took a step back to reevaluate the whole situation. The whole, uh, in the face of Western incursions, what am I supposed to do with this? ailing empire what am I supposed what's the next step I should take and then while I'm trying to modernize this country I'm trying to improve things make things work and then all these foreign powers start to make my life difficult you know this Japanese empire that's starting to get so strong threatening me in terms of the naval power and then obviously we all know that led to the first Sino-Japanese war that was a, a crushing a humiliating defeat for China and then that Basically, just release the whole floodgates for like the Western powers to come in and uh um basically scramble for concessions in China. So basically, they're cutting us up. I don't think I as CC, I can remain so open minded and so receptive to reforms anymore. So all these all these threats internally as well as externally, all these changes in in the the palace as well as outside of the palace, I think pushed her to be just like, okay, I think I had enough. I'm going to build walls now. I'm going to just not be. Uh, so open-minded to modernization anymore all these people are trying to to basically bring my empire down so I think that created that that sort of paranoia in her the whole suspicions of like everybody not just the foreign powers but also the pro-west uh, reformers in inside the palace so that created that boundary that whole walls that she started to build up yeah
0: yeah and I think it comes down as you said to the whole world coming down onto her and it's almost like a conflict inside her own mind as well and going on to your point of the first Sino-Japanese war I have read somewhere that one of the reasons why they lost was because the ships weren't maintained properly because she spent a lot of money maintaining the palace. So I guess drawing onto that and her own personal projects, what what do you think about that?
1: I think her personal corruption definitely is clear as Everybody knows it. Like you see yeah. how opulent her inner palaces were, and how obsessed and vain she is as a person. Like she always have the best clothing. She has to have a feast every single meal. I think all these actually contributed yeah. to. These are definitely factors that ended the, the empire. But I won't say it's the main factor. Like you asked me earlier, what's the greatest uh, failure? I feel really is her disastrous policy U-turn. Like, she didn't stick to what she she set out to do. Like, when you want to modernize, you can't just stop halfway because uh, that's just not how things work. Like, I don't think she stopped halfway. She sort of reversed the whole thing. Like, she was very open-minded towards Westernization and Western foreign powers. She saw the merits of modernization. And then because she couldn't overcome her paranoia, in in my opinion, she couldn't deal with a lot of the the internal, as well as external changes, she sort of just took a very big uh, U-turn. It's just like a 180 degrees change, like... I'm not gonna do this anymore. So a lot of historians actually saw this U-turn in terms of the her failure to accept the to work with to join the hundred days reform is basically ending the last chance that China had. If she had, you know, had been more open minded, if she had worked with Guangxi at that point in time, it might possibly potentially have saved the empire. That's a lot of what a lot of historians believe at that point in time. Yeah. So what I feel is the greatest failure is is really the policy U-turn, rather so much, not so much of the corruption part.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay and yeah. I, and i think that's probably where a lot of i guess the hate for her stems from as well
1: yeah it's like the country is dying, but you're spending so much money on your inner palace, on your your lifestyle, yeah. and you're not being very shy about it. yeah. So I, I think that helped to cement her whole reputation as a, a, a really this corrupted woman who only cares about herself. I, I read somewhere that um, I believe is uh, Mao Zedong's wife, I believe uh, Jiang Qing, when she was arrested yeah. in the 70s. Uh, it was also revealed that she had a very uh, opulent lifestyle. Uh, I think that didn't help the whole women, Chinese women, Chinese women leader kind of perspective. Like we all just see them as like, they're just corrupted. They just make use of state funds to fund their own uh, materialistic lifestyle. And that, you know, made Sissy worse in terms of uh, public conception as well.
0: Yeah. And that actually, now that you mention it, I think it's very sort of interesting to note that she could possibly have also been vilified because she was a female, right? A female figurehead. And China has mainly been patriarchal. From a female's perspective, what should us in general as a whole, can we learn from Sushi's experiences? And what does that say about women in leadership positions um, and all that?
1: I think it's, like I mentioned earlier, it's definitely tough for women to not just, to rise through the ranks. I think that's really very difficult at a point in time where you're dealing with a lot of other concubines. But the fact that she managed to stand at the highest authority I think that is something that, like I mentioned earlier, we didn't really give her enough credit for. It requires, uh, I think, more than just intelligence, more than just observational skills, more than just playing the whole political game. I think it's the fact that she managed to convince everyone that she's on equal standing as um, males, as like even the empress. Uh, Even after she sort of retired uh, towards the later part of um, the years, uh, a lot of the state officials were actually going to her instead of the emperor for advice. I think there is something that she has achieved of this whole sea of male officials male officials male leaders i managed to make them feel that my opinions matter i know better than an emperor i think that is something that we should give her some credit for at that point in time uh, but like you mentioned um there's a lot of this patriarchy there's a lot of this whole uh, male-centric male-dominated perspectives in, in history i, I hope that through my article, we can um try to shed more light on some of the contributions that female leaders have, have made also. It's unfortunate yeah. that my example is see because you know she's such a divisive and, and controversial character. But yeah. I hope that we can see beyond um the gender and to see to, to really objectively uh, evaluate her contributions and think in terms of the fact that she was a woman who is just basically against the world at that point in time. The world is against her, she's against yeah. the world and, and how difficult it must have been. Yeah.
0: No, that's very insightful. And I think going on that, when you wrote your article, what do you hope to achieve um, with the article you've written? And how do you think her perception would change and will it ever change?
1: Personally, um, growing up and going through my, my undergraduate career and all those things, I, I've never really believed in that whole, you know, this great man theory. Like, you know, this this person is, is the hero of this country. He, he founded this place. It's all about him. Uh, I've never believed in them. Controversial as it might sound, I, I personally believe that. The Hitler and Gandhi there is a Gandhi in Hitler, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like there is no political figure that is like 100% sane or 100% villain, right? Even, even Hitler had contributions, right? Even Gandhi might have his dark side. So I feel that there is, it's, it's wrong that we treat a certain historical figure as just he, he or she screwed up and he, he or she will always be a screw up. I think that when history vilifies a certain historical figure in this way, it is sort of create that whole boundary, create that whole barrier between people who want to learn about history Sometimes we feel like, oh, that person is just like that. Maybe he's really like that. And you are not so interested to learn more. For a general audience, it could be like that. And you will just be vilified forever. I think that's not fair. And I think um, for people who study history, uh, the role of history is really to to facilitate this ongoing... It's sort of a never ending discussion and conversation between the past and the present. We shouldn't take what we have learned in the past as just it is this person is just a, a villain for the rest of the time. Okay, um, it, it shouldn't be like this. You know, all these narratives and all these uh, perspectives will and should go through generations and generations of interpretation and even reinterpretations everything we know today might just be disputed in the the near future Uh, I think that's the beauty of history to me that we never stop questioning the good the bad the ugly you know things that are controversial things that uh, that make people uncomfortable I think there's something that's the role that history plays and through my article I really hope that we can see things from a a different perspective now take a step back and and just reevaluate what we have learned and also balance it with the emerging perspectives and emerging narratives especially a lot of the revision arguments that are actually coming um, out, um, surfacing in in, in the modern times, that we paint a more balanced picture. I think balance is the key word over here, a more balanced picture of Cixi's merits as well as her demerits. And then we try to um, see her in a more forgiving lens right? to understand the circumstances that shaped her decisions, the sort of reluctance, the sort of unwillingness that she experienced, the the sort of no-choice situation she was in. I hope that we can uh, move towards um, that, that part of the evaluation. Yeah.
0: And honestly, when I read your article, I could feel myself changing my own sentiments of sushi um, as I was reading mm-hmm. your article. And I think because of that, that's why I really enjoyed it. And so do you okay. think going on what you said, if people want to learn about a personality, an event or something that occurred in the past, what do you think is the easiest way for someone to understand all of that without having been blinded by everything that's been fed to them already?
1: Um, reevaluate the sources we get our information from. You know, uh, a lot of the people who have learned about Tsuzi actually subscribe to the more Western uh, historiography, in a sense. So a lot of these perspectives that we have actually come from uh, published books in the Western world. When I was doing my research, I I, I learned about some books that are re studied, in a sense. Actually, some of these sources were not even um, proven. Some of these sources were actually made up. This book called China by the Empress uh, Dowager by actually um. A uh, Bland and Edmund uh, Black Blackhouse. Uh, I read later that this book that was once regarded as like a very good source about tossie was actually made up of a lot of fabricated information. But by the time this was realized, it was actually too late. A lot of people have already formed uh, opinions about Sussie and the whole perspective of her painting her as despot, as a as a corrupted, evil uh, Chinese woman. These impressions have already been entrenched. So if we don't ever question the sources that we we get this information from, I think uh, we will just leave with the fact that, oh, I'll I'll take this person's word for it. I'll just take this this so, so-called historical research for it. I think that's very wrong. We shouldn't be doing that. We should not just take sources for the. even sources have their downsides. Even sources have their bias. So so as, as a history student, when I studied history, what I was taught most was to question the source. you know, not you shouldn't take everything you read nowadays on the internet it's so easy to get fake news, right? I think that's even worse in today's today's era. So with that understanding it's more important to just take sources from the Western world as well as from the Asian perspective. So once you get these sources, you put all these sources in front of you, And you ask yourself, what do you really feel about it? I think that is the most important part about learning about history, that you form your own opinions. You have your own questions and you get to the conclusion yourself. Yeah. And this conclusion might even change for 30 to 40 years down the road. And that is the whole ongoing conversation you should have with this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I think that's the most important thing. And who knows, maybe my opinion might change over 30 years from now as well. And maybe yours will too.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think because it's the most important thing to think about when reading history, it's also probably the most challenging part um, as well. But, yeah, anyway, I think that brings us to an end, to our discussion. Thank you so much for coming on to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And joining the podcast. I really appreciate it. And, yeah, to all of our listeners, that brings an end to another episode. So I hope all of you enjoyed today's episode and interview. A reminder for all of you to subscribe to my podcast and follow my Instagram if you enjoy this type of content. If you want to contact me, you can slide into my DMs on Insta or you can email me. Details will be in the description box below. So once again, I'd like to thank Angela for joining us today and for agreeing to be interviewed. And I'd also like to thank The Collector for helping me uh, to arrange this interview and to speak with Angela. And also another reminder to check out The Collector as well and the content that they have. And I'll also leave a link in my description box below too. So, okay, that's it, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of your day or evening. And I'll see you all next time on the Bamboo History Podcast. Bye for now.